Hi, I'm Andre and you're listening to Inside Remote, podcast where we share stories from remote work experts and remote companies who are building new era of distributed work. Today our guest is Amir Salihafendic, founder and CEO of Duist. Apart from working on a great task management app Duist, which is loved by millions of users, he's also one of the biggest thought leaders in remote workspace. In case you're on Twitter, you surely haven't missed some of his legendary tweet storms on remote work topics. So I'm very happy to bring Amir on Inside Remote, especially because we will be talking about hard things about hard things, the difficult situations remote work companies find themselves in and how to solve those. Tune in and see what Amir has to say. Amir, welcome to Inside Remote. I'm really happy to have you here. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thank you for having me. To dive in into the first uh, question, I was... Uh, since I was like, I'm a longtime fan of Duist, I was also reading about you guys, how you guys started and everything. And and one of the blogs you mentioned, I think that uh, you hired your first engineer with a very small budget. And as most of us who are starting and like bootstrapping businesses on remote, like how how did you hire first person? How how did this work? Because not not everyone can compete, you know, with the six digit ca- uh, salaries at the moment like when you're starting out and you don't have, let's say, VC money? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And honestly, I think like something that's quite critical is kind of like finding uh, a guerrilla tactic that you can use to hire some of the first people that that, that uh, you will hire. And then maybe also like uh, hire by like a vision or like mission or like the, the type of work that you will provide them then hiring like somebody um, like we, that basically joins you because of a salary, because like you will not be able to compete against uh, even like, you know, modest salaries at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Uh, so honestly, I, I like it's many years ago I started and I don't think there's kind of a formula for this, but you can't really expect to go in and like hire, you know, like engineers from Google as your first uh, <laughs> hires, like uh, you kind of like need to find like a niche and find your entry level in this. Like it can be that you hire some friends that you have worked with before that know you well. Mm-hmm. It can be that, you know, like um, you hire somebody that's kind of like passionate about this, the stuff that you do. So for instance, for us, it could be somebody that has already worked on like productivity apps that we hire. Um, or something in that regard. I, I think really you need to find like a uh, alternative strategy for the first couple of people that you hire. Uh, that's very interesting. Did, did you did you also like you know uh, dive into you know like let's say forums or like for example Reddit would be one of the examples. I was talking with one of the founders of uh, Remote Teams and they said like Reddit is one of the places they start looking for you know talent because there's like a lot of people talk about certain topic and they just like align on certain things is is this like the tactic you're talking about or just like going to your friends and asking them do like you know i have this great project do do you do you share my thoughts let's start something together or like join us uh i mean i think like both tactics can work it just depends like on the context that you're in uh, so I actually uh, uh, employed both of these tactics. So um, like some of the early people I found also via Elance, which is basically like a, 
you know, a freelancing website where you can basically pay people per, per hour or per project. Uh, so that mm-hmm. the way you can mm-hmm. kind of like get uh, at least like some people. And then if you see they are really good, you can kind of try to get them to join you, you know, mm-hmm. or um, another tactic that I use as well is basically like I met a bunch of people in, in Chile while I was part of Startup Chile where their startups had failed. And I basically like, you know, uh, got them into to join forces with me. Um, so I think like there's many venues that you can do this in and it's just like being creative and trying different stuff out and like maybe also trying some alternative strategies that maybe not many use. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. But honestly, like this is, this is a really, really hard, like hiring, I think is like one of the hardest things to do. And it, it, it's hard, like on any level, like even for us right now, it's hard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so it never becomes easy. That, that's, uh, that's for sure. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's, that's, I definitely agree. Like hiring is one of the hardest points. However, you guys like are so uh, exposed and a lot of people like love what you guys doing. Like how come hiring is hard for you? What is the hardest part of hiring for you guys? Um, I mean, I, I think something that also moves as you move along is like you kind of uh, put the bar higher and higher up, especially like if you want, you know, to create a great company, you're like you need to set the bar higher. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's why, like for us, it becomes, uh, it doesn't really become easier. Like we have, uh, you know, like when we do a job posting, we maybe have like thousands of applications, but uh, like most of those people don't really fit the, the type of person we are looking after. Um, and maybe that's the, the, the reason it's kind of like, uh, initially, maybe when you start out, uh, you have like more room for just like experimenting or like trying stuff out while like at a certain point, like you actually need to hire senior people. They need to like be able to, you know, manage complexity, like uh and, and stuff like that and um, and in the beginning maybe like if you're just starting out you have like a very small code base maybe very little uh small labs and stuff like that and you don't really have that much complexity so maybe you can like do with a junior person that just like grows into this role that you need for the future yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i see and talking about that like um one of the treats of uh, hiring is also, let's say, like that we test for it, domain knowledge. And one thing which also uh, com- companies which are working remotely need to do is figure out whether this person is able to work remotely, which is, let's say, at least thirty to fifty percent of the uh, of the part of his uh, of uh, people's certain skills, uh, for example, or the whole package. And uh, how do you like? test for people they can they're able to work remotely like how do you how do you approach that topic oh that is really really tough uh, as well i i mean i think like something like even if you see the studies of like hiring it's kind of like uh, both a science and an art and maybe it's more an art than it's actually a science um so like judging people and figuring out like will they actually fit or not is really, really difficult. And I don't really think there's like one criteria or a certain amount of criteria they can uh, do. Um, so it's maybe just like a, a feeling just like when you see like, you know, some art, like, mm-hmm. is it good art? Is it bad art? Will it fit? Like, 
you don't really know. And, you know, I think people are even more complex than that. Uh, but like some, some like maybe uh, traits that we look after and maybe uh, that they already had done some remote work in the past or like uh, maybe also personal projects, you know, they, uh, that kind of shows us that they can actually like do stuff independently and uh, they can actually execute independently and like manage themselves. Uh, and I think those are like really, really important skills for, for remote work and maybe any work, but as, especially in a remote setting, that is critical. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Makes sense. And uh, yeah, I, I agree that uh, hiring is definitely a hard topic uh, to approach. Even harder is, uh, I think, like also firing a person. Like, do, did you experience that before? And how to approach, for example, for people who haven't fired before and figure out, you know, especially in the remote setting, whether you know you don't know whether you know like a person is enough productive or not. How do you approach this uh, uh, issue, or how did you approach this? I mean, honestly, like firing is even harder, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, uh, especially, and I, I don't actually think firing ever becomes easy. Um, I think like there's some situation where it does become easy. It's kind of like if people fuck up, like, uh, you know, uh, like we have had some instances where people like really breached our trust. Uh, and that makes like firing very easy because, you know, uh, you, you just like, um, yeah, like trust has been breached and then it's not really a very hard conversation and you don't really feel bad for, for like doing the firing. Uh, while in some other situation, like if you have actually grown apart, um, you know, that makes it much more difficult to actually like uh, fire a person or like lay off a person mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. because uh, it's just like they have not maybe done anything wrong. It's it just like they don't really fit anymore. Like the company needs some, somebody else uh, and I find those, uh, firings to be the hardest, uh, parts. And I think maybe like the, um, a connection is maybe relationships. So, you know, if you need to do a breakup, uh, because somebody has cheated, you know, on you, it's much easier to do that than like, because you have grown apart and there's like maybe no love anymore, like connection between you. Um, so, uh, I don't really think like firings are kind of like in like it's kind of spectrum and some of that is like really really tough and some other isn't that tough yeah yeah a great analogy about the relationships and uh also like firing in that case what I wanted to a little bit dive in and ask is uh, especially about these tough situations it's much easier to do like you mentioned you know somebody breached trust uh didn't uh uh, play out to the agreements, deliver their work. But I'm talking mostly about, let's say, your company has like all A players, like everybody is performing really good. And then you start noticing this B players, which are like still good, but they're not on their top notch. And you know it, and this is like, you know, taking for a longer time. How do you, how do you spot those people? And uh, how do you approach then, you know, to... Uh, to, um, to try to say goodbye to them. Yeah, I mean, um, 
that is uh, that is quite tough and honestly like whenever i was uh forced into this situation like i have some very rough like days and weeks before that and maybe even after that uh so i don't think there's kind of like a formula for this but i think there's kind of like a mindset uh, and for us personally like we have messed up this mindset in the beginning um because in the beginning it was kind of like the whole uh, culture of the company was basically like run like a family you know like uh, mm-hmm. um and i think like in a professional context this is really the wrong way to look at a company um and even like a, a team um and that's definitely something that we had experienced at the beginning is like uh it it it's like much much harder you know to fire family members yeah uh, and it was just like the, the wrong way a lens to look at, at things so honestly like right now the way that i like to look at things is kind of like a more like a sports team you know like what you want to build is based like the best uh, team in like you know uh, in the world you don't want to build like the best family in the world mm-hmm. um, and then kind of that change a lot like the, the mind shift that you actually need to to do and then also, I mean, if you take like the sports analogy, like you can still have a lot of respect for people. You can, you know, treat them really well. Like if you see some of like the best sports club in the world, like Barcelona, like, you know, uh, it, it doesn't really mean that you treat people like shit just because uh, it, it, it's like a, a sports context. It just, um, if you look at the lens through like the family lens, I think first, uh, you'll take like a compromise that will actually hurt you in the long run. So let's say that, you know, you have like somebody that's like really, really bad in this position. Uh, like they are not only hurting themselves, they're actually hurting everybody inside a company. And if you have like too many of those, that basically means failure uh, for everybody. Um, and what, once you think, start to think like that, I think it makes it much harder to kind of make these hard decisions. And I think like these hard decisions are kind of like defining for leadership, because if you don't really do this, and if you just like compromise, uh, eventually, like you will just, uh, you know, you will just have like very bad culture and not, nothing will get done. And like uh, people won't really fit that well together. You won't have like great teams inside a company as well. Uh, or great leadership or whatever else like you look at and then you will fail um, so I think that's really on the line when you actually make these hard decisions uh, yeah I really liked uh, the part where you mentioned like the analogy with sport teams that, that's very underrated and uh, like in general with the uh, with the teams like uh, a lot of uh, a lot of companies don't look through that prism although it's it's kind of similar in a way like you it doesn't necessarily mean that you know you always have like the best people for each position but they might also fit to your style of play etc and this is like kind of converts also the to the culture of the company and it's uh, you know it's uh, really uh, how to say i i'm trying to dive more deep and deep and uh, um read books from great coaches uh and it just feels similar when i compare those uh, from several sports to to just uh, awesome and good performing CEOs, like they try to approach things the same way. Um, yeah, actually, like one of the best books I have read on like leadership is maybe um, 
uh, it's called um, the score take care of itself and it's about like um it's from an nfl coach so i don't actually know anything about nfl and i didn't read it because i knew anything about nfl mm -hmm. um, but it's kind of like the same um type of work that maybe you do in, in companies uh, and i think that book like there's so many things in it that, that makes so much sense uh, so I would definitely recommend reading that if you haven't. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I'll definitely also put it in the notes. So going from the <laughs> from the very hard to, uh, let's say, less hard or a little bit different topics is um, uh, we're, go we're still going to talk about people as uh, mentoring people in a remote environment. So my question goes more into the direction of like the whole mantra of the current space is like when you look also at the job descriptions and job boards or ads is everybody's looking for senior people. And second, everybody's looking for people who are who were already working remote. But like as a, let's say if, if we say if we take an ecosystem as a whole, we figure out that people have to learn somewhere to start working remotely and they have to start working somewhere to become senior. So how do you approach like first mentoring people in remote environment? And second, like, do you think there is, if there is a place for, let's say more junior people or meet people to come into the good remote teams and learn on the way and how to approach that? Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, um, this is a super hard topic and um, um, I don't actually think we are very good at this. Um, so basically we don't actually hire that many um, junior people. Mm -hmm. And like historically we have hired very few, especially like in development positions. Um, and, and there are like some reasons for this. I think like a remote makes it much harder to actually teach people because you don't really have like you know, you, you can't like pair program that easily or like just tap somebody on the shoulder once you're blocked or something like yeah. that. So you actually need to have people that are kind of self-maintained and uh, can manage themselves. Uh, and especially in our context, it's kind of asynchronous. So it makes things like much worse than actually if you had like real-time communication mm -hmm. um, as the default. Um, so that's why we have actually not really done this a lot. Um, I hope in the future we can actually invest more into this, but it's like, it's also really, really hard from company perspective to actually invest into this because to get somebody up to speed, uh, let's say that you're a junior developer and you want to become like a senior one, uh, and especially like in a very complex environment, it is basically like our code bases. You need a few years, uh, to do that. And that means like, we actually need to invest a few years into a person and it needs to be somebody else from the team that does this or like, uh, you know, like it needs to be like a mentor that does this. Uh, and right now we don't really have like a resources to actually do this. Mm -hmm. um, so I think this is like a really, really, um, interesting topic. Mm -hmm. And I don't really have a lot of tips on this because we are really, really poor at this. Okay, thank you. But I, I do understand, yeah. like, and you know, the 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 thing is, which I'm trying to also, like just figure out and talk with people is like how how do you get more people to work remotely, and second, you know, how can they how they can grow? Like, do you have like any not like 
uh, for example, like mentorship program for junior people, but more example, like if you get like people, you know, technology changes, like let's say in five years, that's like a totally different landscape. How do you get people to grow inside of the company? Do you have like any programs or like to offer any coachings or anything like that people can grow within your team? Uh, I mean, honestly, like that's something that we really try to invest a lot in. I don't think we are like super great at this yet, mm -hmm. but I think this could like this needs to be like a core at the company, especially like in our market, like, you know, the technology has changed so fast that, you know, the whole organization needs to change with it. And that means that continuous learning is kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a, um, a necessity. It's not even like a, some something nice to have. I think like if you don't actually do this, you will just die mm -hmm. like in a few years uh, because everything will just become stolen. Uh, yeah. Uh, so how do we actually do this? Uh, so first of all, like we work in cycles. So I'm actually unsure how you how aware of you you are like working in cycles. Mm -hmm. but we we work like in monthly cycles, okay. um, and uh, we basically assemble like these squads that work on different projects per cycle. Um, so we have like our twelve cycles per, per year, and then um, uh, twice per year people can actually like um, disconnect from the cycle, and uh, use like a whole month to, to do the stuff that they want to do. So this can actually be like learning a new technology, doing their own like side project, you know, do some refactorings, like whatever else they need to do, they can do it like without really, uh, following like the, the company's plans. Uh, and this is something that we're kind of like rolling out. I have no idea if this actually works or not. Uh, but I hope like this can at least be like a thing where people have like one or two months per year where you can basically like dig into something and oh. learn something. Uh, yeah. So there's one thing. And the other thing is, uh, we also have like career paths and, you know, in the beginning, like it doesn't really make sense to have career paths, but you know, we are like 70 people now and people actually want career paths. Like they, they want to see how they can grow and like, what are the next steps they need to do to advance forward? Um, yeah. So those are probably two things. I mean, we are trying to do some other stuff as well, but I think those are the main stuff. Oh, that's very interesting. And uh, I love the part of uh, career paths. I think like people, Dennis especially good performing people, they like to grow uh, in general. And uh, it's just some way of giving them guidance on how to do that, like if they don't know it by themselves. So that's kind of great. Going from team, I wanted to focus more on you, like, and you being like a single founder, how do you get to unplug from work? How did, did it ever happen that you like, you know, uh, got burned out and uh, very like tired? Like, how did, did it happen ever to you? And what did you do when it happened? And what do you now to unplug? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. And, and honestly, like, I think... Um... Uh, in my current company, uh, there's like a much better like work-life balance, but that is not really, uh, you know, the case for me personally. Like uh, in my previous company, which was basically like VC-backed and uh, fast-growing, like there was basically like no balance. Uh, so I was basically like working all the time. And given that we also like it was a social network, so it grew like 
a ton. Like I think we got like over 10 million uh, people in over in like under six months. Um, so that is kind of like insane uh, scaling. And, you know, I was not really ready for this at all. Um, and after that experience, I was like very, very close to like a huge burnout. Um, so that's kind of like the experience I have in this is basically like when, um, uh, if you actually work all the time, if you're really stressed, if you work with like problems that are like really, uh, like, uh, like fires burning and you need to like go in and, and, and turn them off, uh, then that's kind of like a recipe for, you know, disaster, like a burnout and maybe even worse, like, you know, mental health issues or whatever else, like you can uh, get along. Uh, on this. Uh, so in, in my new company, I've kind of tried to, to separate this. Uh, so I still work very hard, but I have like this ability to disconnect. And especially like the way that the company works is kind of like asynchronous. So this means like I can actually take uh, like some hours off or whatever. Uh, and I don't actually need to work like specific hour, like from nine to five, like I can structure my days as I like, and this helps a lot, like on the burnout aspects and then also like not really taking you know funding um means that you know we are kind of like in full control of our destiny there's like no bosses that can kind of tell us like these are the milestones that you need to hit and then we also profitable mm -hmm. so that means like we don't need to worry like you know if you can, if you can pay salaries in, in six months or not um so i think like it, it, what i would recommend is basically like creating uh, or like trying to go into the direction where you create like the um, uh, the environment that can actually let you like have a good work-life balance. And how do you like, how do you know, like I'm specifically talking about like, how do you know it's enough? Like, for example, you know, like it's, it's a passionate project. Like it's your project you're working on, you know, you're in love with your customers doing something new and you can easily, you know, like, fall into it, work on it like 12 hours and forget, you know, like that even time is, uh, uh, time is running. Like, how do you, how do you know, like you're in the middle of something and you know, like say like, Amir, that's enough for today, you know, like you'll continue this tomorrow. Like, otherwise it's not going to be good for your performance tomorrow, for example, even though, you know, like you're into the flow and everything. I mean, honestly, like, um, I think there's kind of like different aspects of this. And I think like something that maybe like a lot of people don't really understand about our ways, uh, of, of looking at this isn't like that you shouldn't like really work hard or like that you shouldn't be in the zone or that, like you should, uh, restrict yourself to only work for like six hours per day or whatever else like you, you can do. Uh, it's more like, um, that. Um, you're not really pressured into it. That's one aspect of this. And also uh, that you have full control of like, uh, of that. And uh, for instance, if I really want to dig into something and spend like 20 hours on something, I can do that. And I don't think it's actually bad to do that. Uh, okay. It should just not be, you know, the, like, uh, your boss telling you like you need to do that or like you feel a pressure to do that like uh, because mm -hmm. I think like that kind of removes some of the fun aspect like once you dig deep into something you know 
it can become very fun and then like you can lose yourself inside it and that's like a wonderful feeling that's that's what i kind of wanted to talk about you know like because i sometimes i'm personally like but also talk with other people i feel like do feel guilty you know like you jump in something let's say you're like seven hours into your day and you know you try to have like your all your balance and you just like dive into it then you forget oh shit it's like you know it's six o'clock i'm it's just like time went through and i was really into it like and then you feel bad about it but like actually you shouldn't like you know it's it doesn't necessarily need to be every day eight hours like straight you know like can you can balance that like within the week as well and you know sometimes work six another day ten like it also depends the flow and how how do you feel like about like your performance and everything you know uh, exactly. And I think like something that's underrated is kind of like managing energy instead of like time, uh, especially like in our mm -hmm. industry, like, you know, sometimes you can kind of like walk for one hour and solve a really hard problem. And maybe actually that's better than like banging on a keyboard for like four hours, you know, like <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's very hard. And I think like, uh, but I think there's also like some connection in that this, like people think that, uh, we are like promoting like lazy uh, working or like people that don't really <laughs> care about their work. Like it's not really the case. Like what we want to is actually like people that really, really care deeply about their work, but the work should not be the, their whole life. Um, so maybe also actually having like some hobbies or like some stuff that you do outside of work can help a lot on actually, you know, like balancing out uh, this so you have like a lot of fun at work, but you also have like fun outside of work. And that's maybe like the win-win situation. That's a great advice. Yeah, I really like that. And uh, yeah, it, uh, it kind of makes sense. And diving more into like, even more like into like as an, as an individual, like and being a single founder, like, you know, it's known that like a lot of people like as founders, like take a lot of pressure and responsibility as well um, on uh, working even though you know they're not um uh, they don't they're not vc backed and then have like external pressure but they got to have like internal pressure of delivering and wanting to make sure that you know the product is successful out there the people are satisfied and everything and how do you cope like or tackle this responsibility how do you vent like or just cope with all the pressure you get like do you have like do you talk with someone you do sports or you know how do you tackle with all this I mean, honestly, like there's like, there's many things you can do in this aspect. Um, and first of all, like I have actually tried to be like a, a, a founder or a co-founder with two other people. Uh, I think this is kind of like a, like single founding is kind of underrated in these. And there's like a lot of like stories about this, uh, but for me, like it's actually much, much nicer than being like a, a co-founder. Um, because as, of course, like if you have some amazing co-founders, it can be like really, really great. But in our case, like we had a lot of like internal struggles, internal fights. We were not really, you know, like in agreement about the strategy and stuff. And that makes it like much more frustrating than just like being you and like being able to actually make hard decisions of where you want to go. Um, and not, you know, like if you look at like, um, why companies fail actually like co-founder co issues is kind of like very high up in the list. I think it's probably top five or something. Um, 
Um, so that's one aspect. And like the whole, how do you actually like uh, decompress for work or like from stress? I think like it's really important to kind of have like hobbies outside of work. Uh, so for me, it's kind of like football. Um, I play like two or three times per, per week. And when I go there, it just like, you know, I, I don't really have any stress. So like, I, I don't really think about work. Um, that's that's great. Can I ask you which position do you play? Like, apart from being a captain of the team? Yeah, I'm actually like, that's the thing is like, I don't actually really like to be like the leader type of person. Um, okay. So that's actually like, I'm kind of pushed into this, but honestly, like I would probably not prefer uh, that uh, if I could, you know, not do it. Um, uh, yeah. So I, I usually play like wing or like mid uh, in the middle okay. of, of the field. Yeah. So like a playmaker for other people. <laughs> that's nice. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So that's, uh, and of course, like once I was younger, I used to play like more in the forward, or like, um, but yeah, you know, once you hit like 30 something, you lose your speed and then it's not really <laughs> fun to play in that position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, for our American listeners, uh, we're talking about soccer, so <laughs> a bit different than the American football, but also interesting. And uh, for I understand, Amir, you you're playing also in the uh, how to say in the very heart of the city uh, of football, which is Barcelona, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, Barca is amazing. You can kind of like find a game or many games per day, so you can basically play anytime you want, which isn't really the case with many different uh, cities I have lived in. That's great. And uh, yeah, so we are talking about, uh, you know, like just uh, tackling uh, and trying to decompress yourself from all the pressure you get and, uh, you know, just uh, trying to find the hobbies and everything to to find a way out of work and don't think about uh, stuff. For some people, it might be meditation for some sports, for some something else. Um I wanted to bring back a little bit about uh, talking about uh, the times. Jake, do you have any example like or time like when your team was like in a bad situation? So, for example, just to give you an example, like, you know, there was like not enough revenue. You were seeing that, you know, you're going to you're going to slowly die if you don't change or like increase the revenue like in next few months or like product was not meeting the expectations. The iterations were too slow, like. So just like, can you pick like one example where, you know, the team wasn't in a really like good spot and what did you do to turn that around, you know, and uh, meet those expectations you had? So, you know, the example of when something didn't go as planned and then, you know, you did something and that changed the whole perspective and you kind of achieved uh, that as as a team. Yeah, I mean... Um, I think like something to note is I kind of like try to create structures where I'm not forced into these kind of situations um, because, you know, I have been in these type of situations, especially like with my previous company where, you know, you have like a burn rate and you know that, you know, you'll be out of business if you don't raise any money and maybe like the debt clock is kind of like six months away, uh, you know, that isn't a very nice position to be in and that creates like a, a ton of stress uh, or like maybe you're kind of like doing a Hail Mary push 
uh, where you kind of try to pivot or whatever else you do, and then you fail at that. Um, so uh, we don't actually do these kind of, of things. Um, but of course, like there's some situation where like right now we are actually in, in, in one where we have like had a huge release in October called Today's Foundations. And this has like increased uh, our growth and it has also like increased our support tickets. So right now it takes like, I think over 40 hours for people to get back from our support. Uh, and we can't really like get it under control. Because... So that's kind of like a shit situation that we're in. Um, so we're kind of like trying to, to tackle this right now. And, and it's quite difficult because you can't just like go in and hire uh, a lot more people and like, so we are kind of helping the support team out a lot of people inside the company to actually answer tickets. Um, but I wouldn't say this is, you know, kind of like a life of the, or death situation, uh, more just like a, you know, uh, unfortunate one. And it's kind of like a, a shitty customer experience. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. understand. So have you also encountered any other situation which is bad and you're learning something from it? For example, starting like one project and went bad and you know what kind of lessons you got from it was it because of goals or some else like what was also behind it if you can explain more on this topic i think only like baitscap are doing something similar to us it's like we don't actually have goals or like milestones or like uh things that we want to kind of hit uh, so that that you know, makes it much easier to kind of like not have these kind of situations. But I think there's like some releases where we've had like royally fucked up and um, probably like the biggest uh, one that I think has been like Power App uh, release. So basically at some point, I think maybe uh, four or five years ago, we released like the Power App platform for Todoist, which is basically enabling integrations uh, with Todoist. Uh, so for instance, like Google Calendar was one of the integrations we released. And the problem is like, uh, we didn't actually code this with the amounts of usage that this would generate. Um, so we created this platform, but like this platform was like not scalable at, at all. Um, so basically when we launched this, like, I think, you know, our Google integration got like tens of thousands of, of installations, uh, and it kind of brought the power app down. It brought the, the main app down. It was just like, and then also like people had synchronization issues, uh, data was not like synchronized properly and like data was missing. And like, it was just like a clusterfuck of things that went wrong. Um, yeah. And. Uh, we didn't actually recover from this. So like we haven't really released the Power App <laughs> platform yet, uh, but we have learned some stuff there like that, you know, at our scale, if you release something, it really needs to, you know, be scalable. Uh, and you're releasing to like hundreds of thousands of people or millions of people at, at once. And if you fuck up, like then it's a royal fuck up, like, you know, uh, and especially like if it's something very critical, such as like data synchronization, uh, it can be really, really hurtful uh, for the users and like for the general experience. And 
yeah, our brand in, in the end, yeah. That's interesting. So like, <laughs> it's just, uh, we all try to find out the ways to not get into the, this troubling situations and <laughs> uh, get off uh, after that. So, okay, that's, uh, that's very interesting. Yeah, so one question I have for you is like, uh, I've seen that like, um, like in general, uh, founders are the ones, you know, who control the vision uh, of the product, uh, also the mission uh, in ways. And my question is, like, it got to be a time when you figure out like, you know, you there was like, let's say one feature recommendation from somebody and you didn't really agree with that. Like, did you... Did, did it happen to you that, you know, you you had to uh, agree to disagree with somebody and le letting it, you know, flow and get the team to decide on, you know, something to go uh, go out, even though you didn't agree necessarily with it? Like, did you have that kind of a situation before? I think there's like many types of situations where you get into those uh, type of problems and... Um, I mean, that's, I think the art of like delegation, um, uh, and the thing is like when, one when you delegate something, uh, you know, like maybe the person will do it differently. Maybe they will do it like in ways that you don't agree with. Um, uh, maybe, you know, they will like do it and then fail at doing that. But those are kind of like all the paths that are kind of like necessary for you to delegate work. Um, because as you grow, you know, the organization and your work, you can't really like micromanage every decision and every direction. Um, and if you do that, I think like, that's kind of the recipe for failure because, you know, like, uh, you will be a huge block for the whole organization. Um, but of course, like, you know, um, we call it like giving away your Legos. Um, this is like a really, really, uh, hard thing to do um but it's kind of like a necessary necessary thing uh, and i think like especially like as a new leader this is probably like one of the hardest stuff to, to actually go through yeah it's uh it's a very hard thing you know like you're working on this uh thing and you know there is one <laughs> recommendation and so you say oh we should do it that way and you just don't agree and it's very hard to give away something do you like one thing which i uh which I learned on the way and also talk with some other people. I don't know if, if this is something which uh, you learned as well uh, through your uh, path is um, seeing it in a way that, you know, it's easier to start giving away things that cannot collapse company or, you know, like something which is how to say it has to wait. So it's a reversible decision. So, you know, even if you do it, it's not going to, you know, uh, be, let's say, judgmental on the, on the product uh, at the end. So it's easier maybe to start with that before going on to the, you know, irreversible decisions where you can change one, even if you don't agree uh, uh, with it, if you. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I definitely do. And I think that's a very common like framework uh, for decision-making is kind of like, if it's uh, reversible, you should just like go fast because, you know, even if you like mess up, you can easily like reverse back to something. Um, mm -hmm. And I think probably like most decisions are like that. Uh, 
So most decisions should actually be, uh, you know, just taken fast and, you know, you should kind of commit even if you don't agree. And like if things burn down, then you can kind of reverse it. Um, this said, like, um, I think some stuff are kind of like very critical as a founder to get right, such as like, you know, what kind of company you want to build, what kind of direction do you want to go in? Uh, what kind of people are you hiring? What is actually the culture inside a company? You know, what what kind of things do you actually accept and don't accept and stuff like, stuff like that. And I think this is like, uh, there's some things that are really, really hard to delegate and also dangerous to delegate. And I would say like those things are probably some of the stuff that, that I think are critical. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So as a founder, like you can actually delegate everything away. I think, I think uh, you actually need uh, and it's also only like maybe the founders, or like CEOs, that can actually do some of the hard decisions and like, uh, for instance, like the general di direction for the company. Like, uh, it shouldn't just be like a random person that comes up with that. Uh, yeah, makes sense. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's a great explanation of uh, <laughs> this. How to say uh, uh, mental model to use uh, in case of giving away decisions. Yeah, and just like something that, that has inspired my way of thinking is like, uh, I think probably the best uh, book and maybe chapter on like delegation is done by Andy Grove in High Output Management, where he basically creates a framework for how you can actually delegate work. Um, and like one of the critical things is, um, you know, like you should kind of micromanage if the person isn't really ready uh, or can really do the work on uh, themselves, uh, you mm -hmm. know, so maybe they're not really ready to tackle this problem yet. And then you should actually like decrease your micromanagement as, uh, you know, the trust in, in the person and their work grows. Uh, so that's, that's something that I think about is like, um, uh, how much trust do I have? If I delegate this project to this person, like, that things will go smoothly or not. And like, how much should I actually be involved in this? And if I like delegate for somebody that I have worked with for like five years and I know, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are, and I know that they will do like amazing job and probably better job than me on this, then I have like no issues of actually doing that. But if I need to delegate something and I can kind of, you know, I know that something can go re really bad here, then I I'm much more involved in the project. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. And uh, mentioning Andrew Grow, like he's a he's a true legend, uh, and his high output management is a really great book. All, also, what I wanted to uh, add to this uh, topic is, um, I don't know if you heard, like the it's uh, called Farnham Street uh, Block. It's by oh, I forgot the Shane name. Parrish. Shane Parrish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like I love his things and like him being inspired from. Uh, uh warren buffett and uh charlie munger exactly it's just going out of my mind uh yeah it's uh, also like a lot of interesting uh, ways on how to approach thinking of like certain problem as like you know also management is kind of like uh tackling a problem in some way of like delegating stuff and on the other side like shame parish is like greatly uh covering the other the other models which is uh great and helps out uh like a lot of people with you know approaching certain situations where you don't have like you don't have complete information and you just have to figure out how you're going to decide on stuff 
Uh, do you have any other uh, mental model, like or you know, a pattern you use uh, on decision making? Oh, honestly, like uh, Shane's blog uh, is kind of like one of my favorites. So, and he actually also has like a book, uh, both like written and audio book on mental models. Um, and I think there's a lot of them that are very, very interesting, but it's actually very hard to kind of ap apply them in, in your daily work. Um, so what I hope is kind of like that, you know, it's kind of like a osmosis effect that, you know, I'm just like applying them without really knowing about it. And I'm learning about them like um, by just like, like reading about them. But um, I think in mental models, uh, yeah, it's really, really tough. And actually something um, like Shane also has an amazing podcast. I'm unsure if, if you're a subscriber. Yeah, to yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> I'm listening uh, to it, yeah. Uh, like there was uh, a very famous economist that won like a Nobel Prize. And I think actually he created like a lot of the mental models or at least like the um, uh, I, Daniel something. Kahneman or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually not sure what his name is, but uh, that's something like even if you actually know the fallacies of like thinking uh, and like decision making, you will actually still make them. Uh, so that's actually something that also to be aware of. Like even if you know the fallacy, um, the likelihood for you to make them is actually not smaller. And they have actually done studies on this. Mm -hmm. um, so honestly, like, yeah, this is like, I think decision-making is probably one of the hardest things, delegation as well. Um, and the whole mon mental model stuff, like it's really nice to know, but it's really hard to apply. And I'm actually unsure, um, you know, what, what the strategies are there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, uh, it's really funny that, uh, you kind of tend to, <laughs> to read to Farnham Street, as like I was mentioning it. Um, yeah, there's some very interesting stuff. Although, like, yeah, like a lot of things, it's very hard to change behavior um, and adopt new new things. So that's why it takes so long. And we struggle with it, like, for lots of lots of time before we try to change it. And there's many uh, things of why is that so. Um, so, uh, going to a little bit easier questions as the hard ones, I was really draining, you know, like for almost an hour <laughs> with hard ones. Uh, can you tell me like, what are, what are your like, uh, uh, five most used apps in your team, like, uh, in your Duest and, uh, Twist team? Well, which apps do you use uh, like most of the times? Yeah. I mean, we use Twist a lot, which is like our asynchronous team communication app. Uh, mm -hmm. Then we use, of course, like Todoist uh, for task management. Uh, so uh, those are kind of like our principal apps. Then depending on a team, they use different uh, apps. So for instance, like our developers, they use a lot of GitHub. Mm -hmm. uh, our support people use Zentes. Okay. Uh, our designers use maybe Sketch okay. or like Figma. Uh, so... Yeah, I would say like we have like those core apps and then we also like use Zoom, of course, for, for meetings, mm -hmm. um, Google Docs and paper for like, uh, you know, documents. Do, do you use both? Like, for example, like paper and Google Docs at the same time or you like prefer to use one? 
Um, it depends on the team. Ah, okay. Um, so like designers prefer paper docs because they can kind of like embed uh, interactive uh, things and files directly inside the docs. While marketing team, for instance, uh, prefers Google Docs because they have like much nicer editing features. So for instance, like you can do suggestions and the commenting works a bit better. Yeah. So it's a mess, but you know, we use both. Do, like my question quickly is like, do you have like, so this means that like teams are kind of at autonom autonomous on the, you know, the tools they need uh, to work with. So they can kind of can decide on w which to work with. Like, how, so how do you then, you know, do this cooperation between let's say design and marketing, whatever, like, you know, one use paper and second docs like this, is this like, uh, is it like an organized chaos or is like chaos, chaos when then it's really hard to figure out like, you know, what, what are we going to use? <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of like organized chaos. So yeah. Um, uh, so we kind of use like twist and to this as glues. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like you can, you know, create a task with a link to a paper doc for somebody to review that or implement something from that. Uh, or like, you know, you can share that on twist as well. Like, um, so, you know, we kind of have like these glues that kind of like point to these dock um stations mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. that's interesting and w what are your personal three top apps you use apart from todoist and twist of course um yeah i i mean i use vim a lot which is like a, a editor mm -hmm. um, then um, i use bear and ea writer for like writing stuff um so those are probably like my top uh, apps. So, and, and EA, uh, IA and Bear don't like, how do you, how do you change? Like, when do you use uh, one? Um, so Bear is like mostly for like long-term content that I want to store and reference later. While EA Writer is just like, uh, I use that to just like draft stuff up uh, and like, I don't really care about like how it's organized or like, you know, tags or whatever else like you might have. Inside. Okay, so uh, IA is for uh, notes and then Bear is for the long time, uh, long writings. Yeah, I would say like IA is more like for drafts or like just scribbling stuff down or something like that. Like if I do like a post or something, I would probably like start mm -hmm. in uh, EA. While like Bear, I would, you know, have like a note there for some like maybe, um, I don't know, like, uh, post that I want to reference later mm -hmm. or remember mm -hmm. later. Yeah. That's very interesting. I use so. it like the other way around. I have both as well. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's that's uh, that's strange. <laughs> yeah, as like I yeah I think bear like mostly notes like like on mobile and on things like and and writings I do in IA yeah yeah <laughs> yeah funny uh, how we how we do things differently huh. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, um, yeah, so do you, like, before we, like, wrap up, uh, I wanted to do, like, uh, five quick uh, uh, questions, like, so it's, like, quick and shoot, like, I ask you a question and you answer, like, quickly. Uh, are you down for this? Sure, let's, yeah, let's do okay. it. Yeah, okay. So uh, how many hours of sleep a day? Um, yeah, this is a tough one. Like, I really want to get, like, seven um but you know i use like the aura ring and 
uh, I think probably I get like maybe six, six and a half. Yeah, I mean, you know, the situation with having a toddler and a baby doesn't make up <laughs> my Can you imagine? Sure. Okay, uh, summer and winter. Uh, summer for for sure. Though I like skiing in the winter, but yeah. Um, okay, synchronous or asynchronous? Asynchronous all the way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, working with music or without? I work with music. Yeah. Um, but it needs to kind of like be uh, like it can't be like rock or something. Like it needs to be electronic or something with beats and stuff. So I can kind of get into a flow. Uh, okay. Uh, your favorite artist, music artist. Yeah, I really like Daft Punk and the whole like culture they have built and the brand. I think it, it, it's quite okay. something. Um, and uh, working from home, co-working space or coffee shop? What's your preference? Uh, co-working space, yeah. Uh, I, I don't actually like, like to work that much from home, um, which is kind of strange because like 90% of a company actually works from home most of the time. Uh, so I'm kind of an outliner like. I like to separate, you know, like between work and life. <laughs> um, okay, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I kind of like do 50-50, so I, I, I understand your situation. Um, yeah, and we, are, we came to an end. Thanks a lot for uh, joining this uh, uh, show and coming to Inside Remote. Uh, can you tell us where can people reach you? Sure. First, like, thanks for having me here. And uh, I think I, I'm easily reachable on Twitter. It's Amix3K. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm active there. So, yeah. Thanks a lot for listening to another episode of Inside Remote. I hope you really enjoyed my time with Amir. Uh, I think he shared like a lot of great wisdom uh, with us. So... Um, in case you like this episode and in case you like Inside Remote, don't forget to go on your favorite podcast app or iTunes and give us a review. Thanks a lot and see you soon.